All right, well, I don't watch horror movies. Um, one, I've watched two horror movies in my life. One was actually over Thanksgiving week when I was about eight years old with one of my crazy uncles. My mom and dad didn't know I was watching that movie with him. Uh, but that's not the one I was going to talk about today. I just re- remembered that was Thanksgiving week. Um, the other one was I was on a sleepover. I was about 12 years old. My mom was like, hey, if they watch any bad movies, you shouldn't watch. And I was like, of course, I'm not going to do that. But then, of course, peer pressure and all that. And so I, don't, I think it was The Exorcist that was on when I was 12. And all the 12-year-old boys are gathered around. And I remember the scene where vividly, I mean, I haven't, this is what, what I remember anyway, is there's a, a friar or some kind of religious figure in a, and he's, he's got some sort of, sort of a robe on, he's got a golden cross, and he's calling out in Latin to a man, a demon-possessed man who's strapped to a chair, and, uh, and he's calling out the demons, and as the demons come out, and, and maybe I'm getting movies confused, but anyway, as I remember it, uh, there's blood splattering everywhere, and it was gross and, and horrific, truly. Um, I mean, apparently only demons respond to Latin, which is, you know, kind of a weird part of that. But anyway, um, you know, that's one type of evil. It's a type of super obvious evil. You, you know it when you see it. And that is one kind of evil, and that's kind of represented in the first beast. And we'll get into that. And that kind of evil is horrible and, and something that we should be aware of. There's a second kind of evil in the world And it's an evil that is more dangerous and actually more scary as I've grown up and come to know. And it's evil that you don't realize is there. It's the evil of deception. It's the evil that comes with people that speak smooth words without character and they deceive. And it's it's too late before you realize that you've been taken in. That's that represents the second kind of beast that we're talking about here in the passage. The beauty of the gospel is that either kind of evil, whether that evil is really obvious or whether that evil is, uh, is an evil of deception, there's something that we can do as God's people that defies that evil, that stands in the face of that evil together. That evil which is really a manifestation of Satan's work in the world. And the way that we defy evil in the world through the church is through our worship. And so where we'll go in the passage at the end is that the church defies the beast as we worship the true and living God, the true and living God, the lamb who was crucified, slain, raised from the dead, and is now ascended into heaven. So we're going to talk about two beasts, and then we're going to talk about defying the beast or the beasts with our worship. The first beast in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 13, is the beast of military and political power. The beast of military and political power. At the end of chapter 12, we find the dragon, who is Satan, standing on the sand of the sea. And in biblical literature, if you will go back and read it through this lens, the sea is always a place where evil comes from. It's this chaotic, uncontrollable reality where or monsters live, or evil lurks. And so it's no surprise that Satan would be standing on the edge of the sea. And the beast rises up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, which if you were here last week, 
in chapter 12, verse 3, this is the same description that we have of the dragon. So the beast, what is the beast? The beast, both beasts are a, a current manifestation of the dragon or of Satan's power in the world. Okay, the horns throughout biblical literature symbolize military power. If you think about it, animals fight with their horns. So this is always a show of power. And then um, the, the heads and the diadems refer to political power, these crowns on the heads of the beast. So this beast is making war through political and military conquest. And in uh, chapter 13, verse 2, the mentioning of these three animals takes us back to Daniel 7. Very clearly, we were there last week, where the Ancient of Days, Jesus, comes and he makes war on the world. He makes war on these kingdoms that stand against him. In Daniel 7, these kingdoms are listed in a vision and they reveal a progression of future empires. Okay, so there you have, and back in Daniel 7, you have Babylonia, pictured as a lion. You have the Medes and the Persians who come next as a bear. You have Alexander's Hellenistic regime as a leopard. Those are the three animals mentioned in 13.2. So you have a direct allusion back. And in Daniel 7.19 and following, he tells us that there's going to be another uh, beast who will come, another kingdom that will come that will be worse than all the other kingdoms that have come before it. And that kingdom is not given an animal to go along with it. And so probably the animal that goes along with that part of Daniel's vision is the beast in Revelation 13. So the beast is the manifestation, the, the animal-like manifestation of Daniel's fourth kingdom. So the beast signifies what exactly? The beast signifies, this first beast signifies the way that Satan influences the world in the last days, meaning all the days between Jesus' resurrection and his return, these last days, when the, the rule of, of military and politics manifests the will and desires of Satan, that is the beast. And in John's day, he was definitely thinking about Nero, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But just look at verse 3. This is super interesting. The beast, this beast has a mortal wound that appears to have been miraculously healed. So what's happening here? Well, this is a clear allusion to Revelation 5, where Jesus is standing next to the, the throne, looking as one as if he has been slain. So the lamb who was slain is standing, so you have a resurrected lamb who has been slain, and he is standing there. He is the true king of kings who has been raised up after being crucified. So what you have here with the beast, this first beast, is you have a parody of Jesus. You have a parody of redemption. You have something that looks like it, as if it has power because it has a redemption story to it, but the problem of the redemption story is that there's no redemption in it that's connected to Jesus. And so what you find throughout history is you find politicians and you find uh, uh, political kingdoms and rulers who have these kind of redemption stories. 
They look like they're going down, but they're not out, and somehow they come back, and that gives power to their message. You think about it in, in, our, in our lives today, to take it out of politics for just a second. Everybody, so many people have a redemption story. But when they start talking about their redemption story, they start telling their redemption story, there's no Jesus in the story. Their redeemer usually is themselves. They, re- they learn to reach down inside themselves and make themselves strong. They learn from their mistakes, and so now they're a better person. They had a difficult upbringing, but wow, they've really learned to manage their money and their time, and now they're successful, and we call it a redemption story. It's not a redemption story because there's no Jesus in the story. Then you take it back into politics. We love these stories. There's no Jesus in the story. We love football coaches who, who ended up having some kind of problems. They broke NCAA violations, but now they've come clean, and now they really realize what they've done, and now they've come back, and they're your coach, and you're super glad about it because he actually knows how to coach football. We do this with our politicians or our leaders. Well, she has really been oppressed in her life, but look at her power. Look at her strength. Well, he really has a lot of haters. He has a lot of people going after him. But look how strong he is. He's stronger than the rest of us, so let's elect him. A redemption story without Jesus isn't redemption. It's a wound that is there. It looks like it's been healed, but it's not been healed. And we see this throughout history with kingdoms during this time. Nero, if you don't know Nero, Nero was one of the worst kings, one of the worst emperors that Rome ever had that the world has ever seen. Uh, Nero, what, he killed Christians for, for sport. He would light them on fire. He would, he would put them on the tops of trees, and he would roll them in tar, and he would set them on fire to light the streets as he was, as he was caravanning through the city. And people are calling out to Nero, who is like Nero? Who can stand against Nero? You definitely have the illusion in John's mind to, to Nero. Nero died in AD 68 suddenly. And history now proves to us that Nero committed suicide. He, was, he had some mental problems. Um, he committed suicide, and there was a rumor that spread after that, probably spread by Rome, that actually Nero hadn't died, but he was hanging out in Parthia, which is over like modern-day Iraq, And one day he was going to come back, as it were, from the dead, and he was going to rule again. While that rumor is spreading, the next two emperors come about, Titus and Domitian, who are Nero-like in their power, and they rule until AD 96. And so basically, it, it seems as if, even though Nero is dead, he has this mortal wound that has been healed. And so Nero's fame spread even after he killed himself in AD 68. He was rumored to be down, but he's not down. He's not dead. He keeps on raising himself up. It's a redemption story with Nero as the savior in it. This beast in verse 5 is just like the Antichrist. Antichrist is actually those words, that word is not in Revelation. 
You only find it in First and Second John. But this beast could be the Antichrist because uh, in verse 5, it utters arrogant and blasphemous words, which is exactly what John says, who also wrote Revelation. So he wrote letters, he wrote Revelation. This beast is acting just like the Antichrist of First and Second John. And the beast leads people to worship itself and to worship Satan instead of worshiping Jesus. So as we've already talked about some of this, and this is throughout Revelation, I want you to get this in terms of how do you interpret Revelation. Some of the interpretation of Revelation is about the future, even still for us. Some of Revelation has already been fulfilled in some ways in the past. So there are partial fulfillments to what's already, what's happened in history has already fulfilled some of Revelation. And so I think one of the the things that's already been fulfilled, for example, and we're going back into the realm of military and political leadership with Nero, this is fascinating. But at the end of the chapter, we talk about the mark of the beast being the number 666. So many scholars, many, many scholars believe that this is a reference to Nero. And let me tell you what, it's kind of like a secret code. Again, like I said last week, you've got to put on your thinking hats with me, okay? You're going to have to do some math, all right? Math in church, it's kind of hard to do, I understand. For some of you, it's easy. For others of us, it's not easy. So, but at the end of the chapter, look at how John describes this number. He says at the end of verse 17 that the number, it says the number of its name the number of its name. That's a very unusual way to talk, indicating that the name has a number, okay? Then he says, he goes on, let the one who has understanding calculate the name. Calculate is a math word, okay? Calculate, interesting word. And then finally he says in verse 18, it is the number of a man and his number is 666, So we're going to do some Bible math here, okay? So in ancient languages, letters were often assigned numerical values. Okay, you sticking with me? All right. So the the term Neron Kaiser in Greek, when it's translated into Hebrew, and then you calculate the numbers associated with the letters of Neron Kaiser in Hebrew, if you total that up, it equals 600 and 66. Also, amazingly, there's an ancient code called gematria. I didn't know about this till this week. That you can calculate 666 when you total up the value of the word beast, therion, in Greek. Okay? So I believe the best way to interpret the number 666 is that John has some secret math code that he's telling to people And he's saying the beast is Nero. Now, it's not only Nero, but the beast is Nero and all of the people like Nero in the world. All of the military and political leaders who are like Nero, who come in and manifest Satan in the way that they live, the way that they rule, this is how you find out who the beast is. 666 could also mean Six is a number that is not yet, that is not perfect. It's, it seems to be approaching perfection, but it's not perfect. That's the other interpretation. I think that's legitimate. Seven is the perfect number. Six is trying to get there. I, I think, though, that the way John writes, that the better interpretation 
is to see him writing out that he believes that Nero and people like him are the beast. And so look at the response of the people to the beast in verse 4. The people worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against the beast? Nero would enter into Rome as Christians are burning around him to these chants. You can see this type of, of, uh, this type of, of, of vibrant human worship. You can see it in Nazi Germany. You can see it in North Korea. You can see it around the world where you have this militaristic, political, beast-like leadership that's happening. We see that in the past and we see it in the present. So this mortal wound that has been healed, humankind has been looking for a political kingdom throughout its history who will, who will parody redemption for us, who will save us. We looked in the past, we looked to the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. At some point in time, more recently, the British dominated the world. Currently, America is the most powerful country in the world. But it won't always be the case unless Jesus tarries sooner rather than later because what happens with every kingdom is, is it gives way. Who knows what the next kingdom will be that will be the most powerful in the world. But these kingdoms have a story. They have a narrative where they, they, they parody redemption. They, they look as if they're down and out, but they come back. And we tend to put our hope in politics and military. But there is no kingdom in this world that can heal your mortal wound as human beings. There is no kingdom that you can look to in this world. There is no nation. There is no state. There is no politician who can heal you. Only Jesus can heal you. It's really dangerous when we conflate religion with politics. It's dangerous when we start to look to America to be our savior rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's dangerous when we blend the two up. We need to be careful to worship Christ. There's another way that kingdoms in the world throughout history have oppressed God's people. And the end of this in, verse, in chapter 13, verse 10, is, is the oppression of God's people. Political rule is enforced not just with guns and tanks, but with propaganda. And we're gonna, that's the whole second beast way of doing things. Okay, we're going to get there in just a minute. But I don't want you to disconnect this from the way that politics works. Throughout history, Rome had a narrative. They wanted you to believe. They printed it on their coins. They had slogans around the kingdom, things that they wanted you to believe about Rome. Egypt did it before that. And after that, kingdoms have risen and fall. And the kingdom needs you to believe what they want you to believe. And so they tell you what you're supposed to believe. And so maybe in some ways, this is kind of where we get the idea of political correctness today. There are things that are okay for you to say, and there are things that are not okay for you to say. There are things that are okay for you to believe, and there are things that are not okay for you to believe. And there is a political will to some extent, it's hard to find it, hard to figure out exactly where it is, but there's a political will behind that social acceptance or social shame. Okay, there's a political power 
that is being exerted on the church that there are certain things that we have believed throughout the centuries about morality, about what is right and wrong, about sexuality, about gender, about abortion, that we are now being told that we should not believe those things. Because if we do, we hate people. Okay, that is just political power or social power. And the power is in the shame. The power is in the canceling of you, potentially, if you hold on to those, those beliefs. And, and so I think it's really important that when you think about politics, that you also think about what does the nation want you, or some leaders in the nation, there is no like united American viewpoint, but there is a power behind the political correct narrative, and there's a cost. There's a cost. I mean, in America today, the threat for us is, is not really existentially guns and tanks. That's, I mean, some people think it is. I disagree with them. I don't think you need to form a militia. I think you need to be much more aware of what you feel like you're allowed to think and feel and believe in America. And that's really important for us to hold on to our faith in this moment. There is no promise here. If you look at verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, the sword with the sword he must be slain. There is no promise contra the, the prosperity gospel people that if you believe in Jesus, that you will, uh, if you believe in Jesus, the, the, the wrong version is you will keep your job, you will not lose your friends, and you will not lose your life. That's just not true. If you follow Jesus, you may lose your job, you may lose your friends, and you may lose your life for following Jesus. Those who follow Jesus, there's a cost. There's a cost in China, there's a cost in North Korea, there's a cost in Nigeria, there's a cost in America. Maybe it's a different cost, but there's a cost to following Jesus when what we believe is different than the culture around us, and it always is, there's a cost to holding on to our faith. In terms of uh, totalitarian leadership, which you might find with Nero and others like him, Kim Jong-un, there is a physical cost. You may lose your physical life. And in a regime like, or in a, in a state like America, the cost is not physical, probably, the cost is social, the cost is economic, the cost is maybe cultural power. And so we have to be aware of it. And that gets us into the second beast, the beast of propaganda and deception. The second beast exercises power through propaganda and deception. And his end game, though, you need to see, is the same as the first beast, which is to magnify and glorify the work of Satan in the world. This is really interesting in, in uh, verse 11. It says it has, this is a lamb that has two horns, but it spoke like a dragon. So it, again, this reference to a lamb. So it looks innocent and helpless enough, but the power is in its mouth. The power is in its ability to communicate and to deceive there's a mimicry of Jesus here again in the way that this, this second beast functions. And John is definitely referring here to the way kingdoms influence their people to get in line. Some kingdoms make war and they, they, they do this through things like Tiananmen Square and tanks rolling through the city. And some kingdoms, all kingdoms do this through 
propaganda and through telling you what you are supposed to believe. So in John's day, the Roman Empire was full of images of power. The propaganda had to do mostly with the promise of prosperity. The idea is if you will serve Rome, Rome will serve you. Okay? It's quid pro quo. You scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. You make it hard on us, we'll make it hard on you. And this is how it works. This is how it works in kingdoms. The second beast is clearly tied to economics. Uh, Verses 16 and 17, the people could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of names. Now, when I grew up, I immediately thought about tattoos on foreheads and hands and and computer chips being implanted in you. And I don't think that's the best way to think about this. There's a few reasons why. One reason is because also in chapter 14, the people in heaven have marks on their foreheads too, okay? Uh, So what's being communicated here is throughout the Old Testament, when you write something, when you're told to write something on your hands or your forehead, it wasn't literal. It's a marking that characterizes and identifies you as whose you are. Okay? And so it's not a literal, you're not going to literally get a barcode tattooed on your forehead one day. That's not what you need to be worried about is a news story coming out where you're like, oh my gosh, here it is, the tattoos. No. It's much more subtle than that. The idea is that if you don't respond to the propaganda, then you lose your money, you lose your social status, and you lose your power. You've got to play along with the second beast. You've got to accept the propaganda. There's going to be a consequence if you don't follow in the wake of what the beast or what the, the, the nation state wants you to believe. This beast doesn't influence you with hard power by telling you that you'll be jailed or killed. This beast, beast works with soft power. He wins over hearts and minds through deceiving words. Soft power sells itself by promising you a better life if you will just go along with what's being communicated. So there are two classic novels that depict how hard and soft power work. So again, thinking caps, please, right? Now you're in English class. You were in math earlier, now you're in English, okay? So the novel 1984 by George Orwell is a picture of hard power. Orwell predicted the rise of a a totalitarian state, and he coined the term Big Brother, where Big Brother is watching over you and controlling you. It's a totalitarian dictatorship. We see this certainly in China, North Korea, in communist states in an unbelievably concerning way. We also see it in America too, I get you, but it's not like China. It's not, okay? But we still need to be aware of security and privacy and things like that, I get you, all right? But there's another novel that highlights the way soft power works, which is the power of propaganda. It's depicted in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Huxley feared a day when the promise of ease and comfort through constant entertainment would be the allure that shapes our society. Neil Postman, in his book, it's a brilliant book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, he analyzes and juxtaposes the visions of these two future societies that these two men, Huxley and Orwell, write about. And Postman asks, which eventual reality should we be more afraid of in America? The totalitarian state, the big brother state, 
or the state that influences you with propaganda so that we amuse ourselves to death. Hard power or soft power? Military power or the power of propaganda? Listen to Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says this, In Huxley's vision, that is Brave New World, no big brother, as envisioned by Orwell, is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As Huxley saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that, they're, and that undermine their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who banned books. What Huxley feared is that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those who would deprive us of Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. Which beast do we need to fear the most in America? The first or the second beast? I think it's the second. Orwell's 1984 is, is certainly relevant and certainly relevant in totalitarian dictatorships, but Huxley's Brave New World is the air we breathe in America. We are amusing ourselves to death so that we become a trivial people who care more about comfort, safety, the newest technology, and general ease than we do anything else. That's one of the reasons why sacrificing or suffering or even dying for Christ, dying for the gospel, seems so far afield. It seems like an alternate reality in America. Why would we die for Christ when we can sit on the couch and stream endlessly? Would we give that up? Would we give up video gaming for the gospel? Would we give up our, our pleasures? Would we give up our triviality? Would we give up our irrelevance? Would we give up our ability to sit in the background and just watch whatever we want and amuse ourselves to death? In fact, what we've done is we've reinterpreted the gospel We've reinterpreted who Jesus is as someone who exists in some sense for our amusement. Instead of Jesus correcting us in our amusement, in our triviality, we have now put Jesus in that place. We have our movies, we have our video games, we have our phones, we have our apps, and that is for our comfort and ease. But then Jesus is plugged into that. Now Jesus is plugged in because he meets a different need that we have, a deeper and more vital need to feel like everything's okay, to amuse us, to, to, to kind of uh, make it interesting for us to live in this world. And so we treat Jesus less like a king and more like a butler. Jesus exists so that he will meet our needs, so that not that we will meet his. And everything has gotten flipped because we are, have grown up in a world where being entertained and being comfortable is the most important thing to many people and many of us in America. The biggest thing for us to consider is not 
is, is not will we uh, give up on, um, will we give our money or give our tithe or things like that. The biggest thing for us to consider is would we simply get up off the couch and, and risk not being entertained so that our lives might change? I mean, I think it has become that basic and that trivial that we have just gotten so accustomed to everything being pretty convenient. In the gospel, as we read, as you read Revelation 13, as I read it this week, I'm like, this seems like an alternate world. That we would die for Christ? I, I, yes, that's the call of the gospel. But when you read the Bible and you realize that the way it hits your own life seems out of context, we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, what needs to change? What needs to change for me? And I, to get it down to the, the more basic level, as we enter into an election year, I think this power of the propaganda beast is so important for us to be aware of. The call in verse 18 is for wisdom. The call when you're facing the first beast, the military political beast, is endurance. The call in verse 18 for the second beast of propaganda is for wisdom. It is for understanding. It is for thinking well. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ in America did not think well. We were unwise in 2020. I've got to believe, in general, that Satan had a field day in the church as we believed all kinds of things, all kinds of narratives. And, and those narratives just made us war against each other instead of being together and looking outward and, and standing together and making war for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean that in the most positive way, advancing the kingdom of God on earth together. We instead were beset with all kinds of arguments, some of them important and some of them completely trivial to the, to the end game of what God is doing in the world. And we need to be careful, I think for us, as we think about it, the second beast is not about state power, it's about peer pressure. What things do you do in life simply because other people are doing them, and if you don't do them, it will make your life harder? What things are you doing because if you didn't do them, you might make less money or have less social capital or power? It might just make things more inconvenient for you. You haven't even really thought through what you believe because what you believe is that you don't want life to be hard. And so whatever seems to make life less hard, you just do that. And in the world that we live in today, you're going to be following a narrative in our culture that is not going to be leading you to Christ. It's going to be leading you away from Christ. This second beast uses its speech to deceive. How would you know if you're being deceived? How would you know? Being deceived, that's the hardest thing, right? Oh no, I think I'm right, but I'm not. How does that work? Well, you need to live in community, like a real community, like people, like embodied, like people with flesh on, okay? I think that in, it's extremely important for you to look at your social media use in, 2020, in 2024. Okay, you should generally probably be on Facebook less, Instagram less, and TikTok less in 2024 than you are right now. I don't know what you're doing with that. If you're young and you're, you're like some of these guys up here or you're in high school and you didn't really go through the election in 2020 and you haven't even reflected on how you do social media use, 
you should just generally not look to social media to learn how to think about the world. <laughs> this is not going to be helpful for you. You should come to the church. You should be in real relationships with people as you learn to think about what is real and how do we respond to that. Jesus wants to lead you, but so does the propaganda beast. And so you need to be careful. And that gets me to my final point. So what do we do in order to defy the beast? Well, the picture in chapter uh, 14 is this. So the first beast, the, the, call, the, the response we're called to is to endure. The second beast, the, the response we're called to is wisdom. But there's a way that we can gain wisdom and there's a way that we can endure that is actually wrapped up in another activity. And that activity that the church is called to in the third section is worship. Is worship. We're called to worship the Lord together with one another. Worship here is simultaneously an act of love for God and it is an act of defiance to Satan. Actually, worship is always that. Worship is always simultaneously an act of love to God and it is an act of defiance to evil that we are standing together with Christ worshiping the true one who was really slain and really risen from the dead. Look at uh, verse 1 in chapter 14. The lamb is standing in the heavenly Mount Zion. The 144,000 are worshiping him. Remember we've said that in this series the 144,000 is not an actual number of people, but it is a, a number that represents all of the redeemed people of God for throughout all of time. It is a complete number of people. It's 12 squared and then multiplied by 1,000, I think, is, is the way to do that. But again, I'm not a math major. Um, 12 is the number of, of completion and perfection. And look at this. Like I said, the, our, his name that is Christ's name is written on our foreheads. And what are we doing there? What are the saints doing? We are singing. We have, there are harps in the background. There's God's voice that's rolling over us. And then we're singing a new song that no one has ever heard on the earth that we'll get to learn when we're in heaven. I think there'll probably be more than one song that we'll learn there. And how are the, the 144,000 described? I wanna just talk about this really briefly. They're described as those who live holy lives on the earth. Now, what does holy mean? It means separate. It means that you're living differently than the world around you, that you're seeking to endure, that you're seeking to be wise, that you're not conforming to the culture around you, but you're a counterculture informed by Christ. So my interpretation here is that this does not mean that there are 144,000 perfect Christians. As you read this, you're kind of like, wow, these people sound perfect. They've never done anything wrong. That's really not possibly the interpretation here because there aren't any perfect people besides Jesus. Uh, but I think the picture here is that these, these people, on one hand, really sought, the, the, the saints really sought to live pure and holy lives, on one hand, and on the other hand, this is, the, this is expressing the power of the blood of Christ and how God views you as a Christian, how God views you if you are under the blood, that you are viewed by him as being as perfect as you can possibly be. This is, what, this is the, the heavenly vision of the church, that we are robed in the righteousness of Christ and we are made perfect. 
In the final verse, verse 7 is a key verse because God sends an angel down from heaven to tell a message to these people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he says this, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come and worship him who made the sea and the springs of water. The message of the angel from heaven to earth is that there is only one true king. The other pseudo-king may parody himself as one who made the sea and the land and may, may style himself as a redeemer, but there's only one redeemer. Judgment is going to come on those who don't believe in him, but for those who do believe in him, theirs is redemption. So when we worship the lamb who was slain but is now truly resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, we defy the beast. We defy the manifestation of Satan's work in the world. So today, as we close in worship, and just just a second here as we sing, I want you to sing with hearts that are fully aware that you are, you're not just expressing your love for God, which you are, you're definitely doing that, but you're also, as we worship together, this worship is an act of defiance against all evil in the world, against anyone that would oppress the church of Jesus Christ, against Satan and all of his manifestations of evil, our worship manifests this love for God and it defies the beast. So let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your great love uh, for your people. I thank you that you um, are with us in the midst of all of these um, confusing and challenging moments, whether we're in a totalitarian state or we're in a free state, uh, either way there are manifestations of evil, some more obvious, like uh, the Halloween movie that I saw, and some less obvious, like the deceiving people that we have come into contact with in the world. So God, we pray that you would give us endurance and give us wisdom and help us to worship you in a way that shows our great love for you and our defiance of evil. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.